Join Justin Charity and Micah Peters in sound only as they discuss their deepest, darkest thoughts about the millennial lifestyle, rap music, video games, anime, YouTube, social media, and their underlying themes. Check out Sound Only on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Let me tell you a little secret. If you want to end the day on an even better note, get yourself a sweet frozen treat from Sonic. Especially since right now at Sonic, you can get half-price shakes after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. That's creamy soft serve hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size and flavor. So save on your chocolate shake today, your strawberry shake tomorrow, and your cheesecake shake the next day. Grab Sonic half-price shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about shh. We're back in movie theaters. That's right. After 13 months, we return to movie theaters. This is worthy of a celebration and celebrate we shall on today's show. We'll talk about our visits and also talk about a movie we saw and many other Americans saw this weekend, A Quiet Place Part 2. Amanda, we're back. How did it feel going back into a movie theater? It was great. Movies are so much better on a movie screen. (laughs) There's just, it's a different experience and I pay attention and it's big and loud and I like it. So tell me about your personal experience. They're they're pretty similar to yours. I have seen two movies in in theaters, quote. You have seen three, I believe. But the the two movies I have seen are A A Quiet Place Part Two, which we will be discussing on this podcast, um, in the Dolby Room at an AMC at the Century City Mall, which is like that sort of a mall, the LA version of a mall. It's like, it's outside, but they got a lot of stores. Um, I got to tell you, I went at two in the afternoon and the Century City food court just like popping. Oh, People yeah. were there having their Shake Shack and their Chick-fil-A to establishments I really enjoy. Um, but like also pretty, you know, respectful. Everyone was at their tables. They're like, it, it seemed like they had sorted it out. So went to the mall to see a movie great. And then I saw In the Heights uh, on the Warner Brothers lot in a screening room, which just like going to a studio lot is my version of Disneyland. I love it every (laughs) time. Just like, please invite me, especially if your studio lot is like on the east half of Los Angeles and you're not going to make me drive all the way to the ocean. Love these Burbank screenings as well. So I, I was at both of those screenings. Also, we'll talk about In the Heights and movie musicals on this show in a couple of weeks. I had a third screening. I'll, I'll tell you about that. I saw the movie Spiral from the Book of Saw. Now, mm-hmm. A Quiet Place Part 2 is a much-anticipated sequel to a movie that I think we both liked a lot that came out a couple of years ago. In the Heights, of course, is an adaptation of a well-known musical and tabbed as an early Oscar contender. Spiral from the Book of Saw is like the eighth or ninth Saw movie. <laughs> and I would say it has not gotten glowing reviews. And so it did not have the same sense of... Um, of event, of grandeur, of excitement, of returning to 
a sort of wonderful normalcy that these other movies did. But I, I, I still loved it. I still was in heaven. But so this one was just you just went to the movies, right? I just went to the movies. Because I just went to a regular movie. Both of these cases, we we did see screenings. And let me just say, by the way, thank you to all the people at the studios arranging the screenings. It seems like a nightmare. They did not sign up to be public health officials in addition <laughs> to just like dealing with all of our complaints. And and I really appreciate it. And I like I felt great and safe. But I haven't done the like I got three hours to kill. Like I wonder what's playing at my local movie theater, partly because I don't know what my local movie theater is now because like the Arclight is no longer with I us. Know, Please I someone know. save the damn Arclight. I know. I went to an AMC and uh, in Burbank just to see Spiral Book of Saw from the Book of Saw. And I just, I, that's not something I would normally do. If I was going to see a movie like that, I definitely would go to the Arclight or maybe the Vista or maybe just one of my locals. And mm-hmm. those theaters, are, most of those theaters are not yet open. So we're, we're doing the multiplex thing. And, you know, that's not necessarily so bad if you get a chance to, say, sit in the Dolby room as we did for A Quiet Place or sit in an IVAX theater, which I did for Spiral. You know, Spiral's not very good. It's a, it's a it, it's a an attempt to kind of reboot the Saw franchise. It stars Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Max Minghella. Good performances. It's like pretty much a seven ripoff. It's extraordinarily gory, as all Saw films are. It does have a bit of propulsiveness. It is also a nice tight 93 minutes long, which I appreciated. And it was fun to see it on a big screen. It did differ a little bit from the experience that you and I had when we saw A Quiet Place. Because as you said, at these studio mandated screenings, even if they're at multiplexes, they're very controlled. The spacing is very precise. Most of the people there are fully masked and not really eating food. Maybe a handful of people were eating food in in my screening. The screening of Spiral was significantly different. It was pretty well spaced, I would say. There was not a very full screening. It was a 5 p.m. screening on a Thursday afternoon. But no one was wearing a mask and everyone was eating. And, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, that's approved. And it's approved. I think, I think, are we at 50% capacity in movie theaters right now in Los Angeles? So there's no, no, no problem with that. But as we are slowly getting reacclimated into society, there is something a little strange about something, somebody just brushing past you holding a big old tub of popcorn and a gigantic cherry Coke, fearful of it being spilled on me. Um, so it was interesting. It was different than those than those press screenings that we've been going to. Did you have any sense of trepidation or were you just kind of fully locked in when you sat down for A Quiet Place? I mean, I just forgot how everything worked. You know, I when I rolled up to A Quiet Place, like I didn't understand parking, you know, just parking in general <laughs> I, I, is something that I've mostly forgot. I mean, I know how to like park the car, but navigating a parking lot, just like a, just, I really had to think through it. Got to remember my ticket. Like, do I validate it here or there? Like, I just I went up the wrong escalator at first, you know, like I just was like, I haven't been out in the world and I don't know how to interact. with So so you just don't know how to be alive. That's actually your (laughs) issue. Well, I don't remember how to be around people. And also, you know, at Mm. at industry screenings, there there's a there's a group of people who loves to chat, who loves to catch up. And let me tell you, those people were just psyched to be back. They had no social inhibitions. And I was a little bit like, okay, I'm, I'm easing into this. I don't really know you anyway, but like you seem to just be in every aisle, like I'm good for you. But I don't know how much of that is like pandemic anxiety versus, I mean, you know me, I really just don't want to interact with the people I don't want to interact with. Um, but I think I was a little bit nervous going and then immediately switched over to like excitement. And I was like, oh, this is fine. I'm fine. I'm wearing a mask. This is like all being taken care of. I'm vaccinated. I feel good. I'm psyched to be here. 
Yeah, I felt the same way. I think there was a few minutes of just kind of getting re-comfortable, resettled, mm-hmm. and then I was back in the zone. And we'll talk about A Quiet Place Part 2. I think there will be a lot of caveats around some of the conversation around the movie, but I will say, for the most part, I was like, this is rocking, man. This, yeah. this kicks ass. It's so loud. The, the picture was impeccable. I talked a little bit about it last week on the show, just about seeing trailers and seeing the differentiation between the colors and the scope and the shape and what what the filmmakers are intending to put out, what the studios are intending to put out. Obviously, we're going to sound a little bit like, um, I don't know, overextended patrons of the arts here by talking about these movies so excitedly, even though it's like chills, but that's fine. You know Uh, what? You guys have been listening to us whine for 15 months. So like, here's some positivity. Congratulations (laughs) to everyone. I completely agree with that. Uh, Seeing Spiral, especially, there were 25 minutes of trailers ahead of that movie, which I would say was a little bit too much. There were eight trailers shown ahead of time, all of which I had seen before, of course. Were there also just like commercials for stuff? No, but there was a two and a half minute introduction to just IMAX, you know, where they showed all the trailers and then there's a sort of preview that you're in an IMAX screening. And I was like, you know, I I know I'm in an IMAX screening. I bought the ticket. I walked into the room where it says IMAX. Like, they don't actually need to do that. I understand that that's all part of the IMAX experience. It was fine. But 26, 27, 28 minutes before a movie starts is, is that's abusive. And I know that that's how most people experience movies. And we need to cut that out of the Cineplex experience. Like it's, you said, the Arclight experience is the way to go. It's an absolute no for me. I have been thinking a lot more about how I spend my time outside of the house now that I get to leave the house again. Uh, the inefficiencies have been made clear to me. And 25 minutes before the movie, no thank you. Yeah, it was too much. Um I don't think that that's going to get reduced anytime soon. In fact, the opposite is probably true because they need to create awareness for these movies. And unlike you and I, and especially me, who sits at home watching trailers all day like a weirdo, there's not a high level of awareness of a lot of the movies that are coming out over the next 6, 9, 12 months. So I expect to see a lot of trailers in movie theaters. Let me ask you about eating in the Mm -hmm. theater. Um, Mm -hmm. I, of course, love to eat snacks in theaters. I unfortunately uh, typically finish all of my snacks before the movie starts. But... It's a, it's an inherent and a key part of my movie-going experience. You're not as much of a snacks person, though. You will eat sometimes. And we're in this now new normal. Yeah. When do you think you'll feel comfortable getting a getting some popcorn, getting some, I don't know, raisinets? What do you like to eat? It's not really a comfort thing. I, I, I'll i do peanut M&Ms or Zach, my husband, like really loves movie popcorn. So he'll get it, eat about like three-fourths of it, and then I'll have some of it. You're right in general. I'm not really a snack person, which is like admitting that you're a sociopath, but it's just not like, I'm really sorry. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I just, it's, it's just, I don't eat between meals that much. Would you just I love like, meals. like three T-bone steaks a day? Like, what does that mean? You don't eat snacks. I, I just, it's like meal times. I don't know. It's you, you, you sit down and you have a meal and I like cooking a meal and I like, I definitely spend a large part of my time thinking about what my next meal is, when I'm going to get it, what it's going to be, how I'm going to prepare it. Love to eat, love food. I just am not like really like grazing on like pretzels to say, to use your example, your beloved pretzels. I I, I don't know. I just, it's not what I'm doing. Would you prefer to bring like a chicken a la king in a Tupperware to the movies? No, because also like the Alamo model just stresses me out because there are people running around and I'm trying to focus. You know, when I go see a movie, I'm, it's a little bit like going to church or it's a, at least like going to a place where I don't have to interact with other people's thoughts and feelings, at least for the run of the movie. One of the main appeals of movie going to me <laughs> is just like, I actually don't have to listen to you for two hours. 
So, and and I do, I find it distracting, but I, I think there's actually an, an IPIC near us, um, near where you and I live in Los Angeles, which is maybe going to have to be one of the places I go see movies now because of the Arclight not existing, unless so someone wants to IPIC, save it. I don't think most people know what that is. So the, the IPIC is another kind of deluxe uh, movie going experience. I've only been once, but... Um, they have really like a full menu, like a restaurant and bring you food and also drinks if you want them. And, and I believe like there's a bar as well and, and, and bring them. The tickets are much more expensive as a result of that. And the food is also e- expensive, but all movie theater food is expensive. Yeah. So, so maybe I will get into it. I, I wonder if that's going to become more of a normal to draw people into the theaters. Obviously, we, we've talked about Alamo Drafthouse uh, over the years, and I pick as another example of an experience like that. The tickets are more expensive. It is more of a true night out where you're sort of having the dinner and a movie simultaneously. Obviously, the AMC theaters are not offering exactly that kind of experience. I'm a little, I'm always a little torn. My wife loves the Alamo Drafthouse. In fact, she was obsessed with going to the Alamo before lockdown happened. And that was one of the heartbreaking things about it is we had created some um, kind of a new tradition by going to see those movies. I'm always very particular about what kind of food I order at a movie theater because I mm-hmm. don't want to eat like a, a giant like tacos. Like I wouldn't want to eat something that's all over my hands in a movie yeah. theater. But I do love the, the opportunity to get a cocktail in there. And I do love the, the opportunity to get some different kinds of snacks. I like a deeper bench of snacks than just your, your typical Sour Patch Kids. Here's the thing about cocktails and wine at a movie theater, which, you know, the Arclight was famous for like the movie pour. Um, but it just makes the bathroom trip inevitable. Mm, and that true. always really stresses me out because, I, you know, I try to time it so that I don't actually have to go to the bathroom. Did not go to the bathroom during The Irishman, which I saw in a theater. I was very proud of myself. Three hours, no breaks. I was right there with you, Marty. But once you bring the cocktail into the mix, I don't know. It gets, I, I just spend my time really anxious that I'm going to have to go to the bathroom and not be, and miss something important. Yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting point about whether it's a new movie you've never seen before or something you're returning to. The Draft House obviously shows a lot of repertory stuff. And in a movie theater like that, if you're going to see, say, I don't know, Gremlins 2, the new batch, it's okay to get a little drunk and to go to the bathroom a couple of times if you've seen the movie a whole bunch of times. If you're seeing something like A Quiet Place Part 2, you don't really want to go to the bathroom during a movie like that because you might miss something incredibly important to the story. That being said, I would usually use bathroom breaks historically as a chance to check my phone to mm-hmm. see what emails I missed or text messages I missed. It was that even if I could just get 90 seconds away, I still had some attention span anxiety pre-pandemic. Now, having spent the last 15 months looking at my phone nonstop like a weirdo, my attention span was a little bit strained in the theater. Less so, I think, for A Quiet Place Part 2, much more so in, in The Heights, which was a, quite a long film, and, in, for in, and in also in Spiral. Did you have any attention span struggles? Yes, of course. I, I would agree with you more so during the two-and-a-half-hour film than the 90-minute film. Some of that is just a, the lesson there is make a film shorter. 90 minutes. Let's do it, people. But I think also... The one upside to watching things at home was that you could do the festival. This isn't working for me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to skip this, which is really an only, only an upside to the viewer. I think that's sad to every person involved in making a film because they spend so much time and effort on it and you do want people to watch it. But you and I, we try to see a lot of movies. You see a lot more movies than I do. Um, but it, 
requires a time commitment. And so if it's just not happening, if it's not working for you, if it's not a good movie, you do want to like skip through it or at least, I, I, I don't know, take some of your attention elsewhere. I guess we've gotten used to that. I've gotten used to that. And so when my mind starts wandering, which inevitably it does over the course of a long period of time now, because, you know, we live in the internet age. I did feel a little like, oh my God, I'm, I just, I'm sitting here. I don't know what to do. How much longer? How Like I did check my phone for time a lot. And yes. my, my experience of how much time had passed was completely off. Well, I think that's a fascinating testament to how effective or not effective, how immersive, how engrossing the movie that you're watching is. And your mileage may vary depending on what kind of movies you like. I think it's not just about the length of time that, that, that spans the film. I think it's also about what kind of a movie it is. A Quiet Place Part 2 is a suspenseful thriller. That's the kind of movie that tends to keep people locked in because you want to see what's going to happen next. In a musical, for example, you know, mu- musicals really move kind of beat to beat, song to song. It's not necessarily as much about the propulsiveness of the story. So I wonder how much other moviegoers, especially people who are not, who don't have to go see movies for a living, will engage with this experience going forward. I do think that there are going to be I think people are so excited to go back. I mean, just the handful of conversations I've had with people who've gone back, there is a, there is a, like, people are falling to their knees. They're so happy to be having this kind of experience. And we haven't even had even close to a genuine, genuinely great movie released yet. I can't imagine when we start getting into the fall and stuff that people are going to be loving that is going to be incredibly memorable comes back. I think it will be a wonderful thing. Whether the industry as a whole bounces back, I mean, you know, we talk about it ad nauseum on this show. There's no way to know the industry has shifted a significant amount, but a quiet place part two is a fascinating movie to reopen everything because it's essentially the first film that was postponed, or at least the, the, the closest film that was postponed before the pandemic hit. And I think that that was wise. You know what? We are recording this show on a Friday. We don't yet know what the total box office gross is. We know on a Thursday night that $5 million worth of humans went to go see this movie. That's a good sign for the Memorial day weekend gross. But unlike some other Paramount films, they held on to this one and they wanted it to be a movie theater experience. I'm sure John Krasinski, the filmmaker, wanted it to be a movie theater experience. What do you think about the decision to hold it all the way to this point? It's smart. I mean, it's obviously financially motivated. Paramount is in need of money. And the original Quiet Place made a lot of money on a small budget. And I think they realized that this experience in a theater, especially because of the sound and the the sound is so, or the lack of sound in the case of A Quiet Place, so essential to the movie. And we talk a lot about how like sound at home really also is kind of underrated or like underserved in the whole streaming at home experience, but it makes a huge difference in the theaters. But there is also just something apt in the marketing as well, right? Like this was one of the first pandemic movies. I believe it was scheduled for like March 20th. 2020, which, you know, is of the week that we'll live in infamy. And so here we are. It's a real like, we're back, baby. It's kind of what Tenet tried to do, but Tenet didn't really get there. And as I think we saw on Thursday night, and you and I have kind of experienced anecdotally, people are ready to go back. And this is really positioned, been positioned as the like, we're back and it's going to be so much better in theaters. And I think it was. I don't want to overstate things, but I was I was blown away. Part of it was just the this being the first film that I saw back in a the theater after a long, long time after it being my number one hobby my entire life. But 
and 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 also I was a I was a very big fan of the first film. Um, I think was it was it South by Southwest where mm-hmm. where where it premiered and that was a rapturous screening. I think people it was one of those things where I think people just did not know John Krasinski was capable of that. It obviously was a very clever idea, very well executed, and it may not be um a quote-unquote important movie. I think there's that infamous Richard Brody review that indicated that this was perhaps a film about Donald Trump's America, and John Krasinski seemed a bit bewildered by that concept. But it was it was just a classical, rollicking, fun time at the movies. And even if it did not have a deep social impact, that's okay. In fact, most movies I don't think are going to have a deep social impact these days. I think that they're going to serve as escape. Godzilla versus Kong returning, to, you know, reopening theaters uh, in a slightly different way a few weeks ago, had a very similar feeling of this is an event. It's amazing just to see this stuff on a big screen. I love how loud this is. And I'm out here with my friends and we're eating popcorn. And so I do think it's a fitting movie to go this wide. It's in, you know, 3,500 screens. This is a traditional, it, just as it would have been five years ago, wide open release. And it seems like it's going to make a whole lot of money. And it's interesting that Paramount has effectively sold off almost every other movie that they were going to release over the last 12 months. You know, you pointed out here Coming to America that went to Amazon Prime, Trial of the Chicago 7 that went to Netflix, Without Remorse that went to Amazon Prime, The Lovebirds that went to Netflix. This one stays. I do think it indicates that this is what movies are now. Uh, this is what theatrical movie going is. And maybe a little bit of that is IP, but maybe more so it's there's a re you have to see this on a big screen. And and those two things are n- don't necessarily always correlate. I do think we'll get original stories. I do think we'll get movies like Tenet, which are big and loud and eventized, but also it probably means mostly IP. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah. The movies they kept were Quiet Place Part Two, Mission Impossible Part Whatever, and Top Gun Two. So the just the franchises. And I think you're right that those movies are all best seen on a theater and you want the, you know, fighter jet flying as fast and high and loud as possible, but also just like money. It's just, these are the sure bets. A Quiet Place Part One made a ton of money. Top Gun actually did make a lot of money, however many years ago before we were born or when we were born. Mission Impossible, moneymaker. They need money. And so- Across the board, you found the studios holding on to or holding back kind of their sure box office bets and then selling off kind of the, well, maybe we could turn this into a franchise with in without remorse or like maybe this will be successful. Um, and I, I think kind of you can't take that risk in theaters anymore. You certainly couldn't last year and this year. So there is a wrinkle here. And we talked about it a little bit, I think, on the show a couple of weeks ago, but you know, part two will be exclusively in theaters for 45 days, which is right. essentially half the amount of time that films like this are usually in theaters and then available on Paramount Plus. Are you a subscriber to Paramount Plus right now? I am honestly don't know to the, the answer to the question right now. No, I'm not. <laughs> I had to think through it. I Well, because I recently signed up for Peacock because Chris Ryan told me I would like Girls 5 Eva, which like I did. I'll be honest, I haven't finished it. I thought your assessment of like, you see one, you get it. Um, it was correct, but I, I wish the best to everyone involved. I, so I am subscribed to Peacock, but I don't think that we have Paramount Plus. Um, so Paramount Plus I have. Okay. Is it good? I got it in anticipation of 
one of the world's greatest film libraries. Yeah, sure. How's which that is, going? Which is only about one one hundredth available currently on the service, and 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 poorly organized and confusing. Um, I'll tell you why I signed up for it. I signed up for it to watch the Challenge All Stars. Are you familiar okay. with that program? Um, you talk about it a lot. I know Bill loves it, right? Yes, it's a you know an MTV property. Mm-hmm. This is a collection of. Here's what makes it different from typical seasons of the challenge, which usually start beautiful 25 year olds competing in extremely intense physical activities to win a lot of money. In this case, it's mm-hmm. a quote unquote all star season, but almost all the people are in their 40s and they are broken down and their bodies are falling apart. And they're also at like that kind of turning point in your life where you're like, who am I? And did mm-hmm. I live my life correctly? Mm-hmm. And so it's a fascinating examination of, of, of lost fame and lost youth. And what? That's the only thing I watch on Paramount Plus. What is an example of a challenge in the challenge? Like what kind of physical feats are they being asked to do? Some of them are as rote as this is a four mile run uphill. Go. And some of them are as complex as you are harnessed to a crane that is attached to a truck and you have to pull bricks off the side of the truck and run them to the other end of the truck while the truck is driving 60 miles an hour. So it's a it's a it's a multifarious television program. I would I would recommend people check out Ringer Dish to hear Bill and David Jacoby talk about the last season of the challenge, not the challenge all stars. Um, Juliette Lehman is, is a scholar in the challenge. If you have any other questions, it's just a show I've dug for a while. And the only place that you can watch this iteration is on Paramount Plus. You know, there are some benefits to that. For example, no commercials. Also, all of the people on the show can curse which is not mm-hmm. something you ever heard on MTV. So you can hear their true voice, how they really want to express themselves. And frankly, when you're 45 and falling off a truck, you want to say, God fucking damn it sometimes. And people are saying those <laughs> words. So anyhow, that's why I have Paramount Plus. And I don't, I'm, you know, I think there are some Star Trek fans, Picard fans, for example, that will use it for those purposes. There's some SpongeBob fans who got it for the SpongeBob movie when that came out. Um, the I th- believe the Rugrats movie is available or the new Rugrats series is available. You, have you not signed up for that? No, I haven't because I saw that. First of all, because I'm a grown adult. And <laughs> second of all, just FYI, everyone, card carrying member of the adult community, which sounds weird when you say it like that. But who, um, who issued that card? I just I, like I am I'm a grown up. Okay. I just am I'm a was grown it, did, up. Did the government send you the card? No, like a, I did. I just like declared it, but <laughs> not in a like card? a cutesy adulting way. I was just like, you know what? I have like taste befitting a woman with a job and responsibilities. Anyway, also I like saw the new quote animation or whatever they're doing with the Rugrats and like, no thanks. That's creepy. It is a little creepy. Um, so Paramount Plus, it will be a place where there will be movies like this pretty quickly. And I wonder just what that means for their theatrical model. It, it seemed as though John Krasinski and Emily Blunt reportedly were not super happy about this news about 45 days. Yes, I believe it was Bloomberg reported that um, and this is becoming a you know a bit of a tradition in Hollywood now where a major studio announces that a film will be going on its streaming service sooner than expected, thus cutting out some of the possible back end money that was almost uh, certainly part of the deals with these major movie stars. And then the major movie stars or major directors or go to the studio and they're like, excuse me, but what about our money? And it seems like Warner Brothers had, you know, quite a ride last year and continues to have a ride, frankly, with many of those. But um, paid, I believe, Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot a lot of money and I paid Denzel Washington a lot of money just being like, sorry, you know, here's a lump sum. Um, Paramount 
uh, reportedly declined to pay John Krasinski and Emily Blunt a lump sum. Yeah, I wonder if it's actually going to meaningfully affect their bottom line at the end of the day, because while 45 days is significantly less than 90, this movie, the original film made in the neighborhood of $340 million the first time around, I would oh, nearly half of which was domestic and half of which was international. Of course, international theaters are open in some spaces, particularly in China, where the box office is booming right now. And if this movie did $5 million on its opening night and did $4.3 million on its opening night for its first installment, it means it's probably headed towards a pretty healthy box office return. Nevertheless, this is a new wrinkle in terms of figuring out how to even release big top films featuring high-level talent. And at this point, I guess John Krasinski and Emily Blunt are really high-level talent. John Krasinski is now the effectively the creator and creative shepherd of a film franchise. A Quiet Place Part Two is now a major film franchise. So I don't know what that means. Will that mean that we lose more of the star system from movies already, which seem to be waning significantly over the last 15 years because it's not as it's not as beneficial for the studios? Do you think it will have an impact on the way that these studios promote and do business with big names? Yes, I'm sure that the contracts five years from now will look very different than the contracts five years ago. I mean, we are sort of in an in-between period, right? That these were all uh, written and deals were made with the expectation of the traditional 90-day window, theater release, whatever. And things are definitely changing. And also, studios and franchises' relationship to to stars and star power and how you market something um, is changing dramatically. You know, who Batman and, and Iron Man are the big names, not the people who play them. So I, it, it's kind of rare, actually, that John Krasinski and Emily Blunt managed to create a franchise that makes so much money without having like of, of new IP. They, it, it is IP now, but, but they made it. It's not like a comic book character with a tremendous backstory or Cruella with no backstory at all. <laughs> but, but I'm certain that everything will change. I don't totally know how just yet. I also still imagine that like really famous people will still make a lot of money. So of I think they'll be okay. Uh, who's really famous will be different in 10 years probably, but that's already happening. Um, I, I think they'll be fine. And I, and I think John Krasinski and Emily Blunt will be fine. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now is also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan because you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash bigpick. That's mintmobile.com slash bigpick. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Let's talk about A Quiet Place Part 2. 
Okay. We're we're going to have a spoiler conversation, but we're not going to spoil too much in the first half of this conversation. When we start spoiling the movie, especially for people who do not want to see the movie, we'll give you a big fat warning and you can tune out. Okay, but can we clarify here? Because we're going to talk about things that happen in the movie. Absolutely. Starting now, right? And there, there are people in this world who consider knowing anything about a movie to be a spoiler. And if you're one of those people, you know, you've made your choices, you know, go with God and also stop listening to this podcast because I don't want to hear from you. Okay. We're going to talk about it. You're talking about those people. Like they're the January 6th insurrectionists. Like they they just don't want to know about the movie. It's okay. It's okay. I can make the distinction between the two types of people. uh, And I have like, you know, and some of them, absolutely not. And some of them, I just, I just don't want to hear from you. No, you're right. Yeah. Many people don't want to know anything about the movie. Uh, I think it was actually Chris who pointed out that um, John Krasinski went on Jimmy Fallon a couple of weeks ago and Jimmy Fallon ruined the first five minutes of the movie. The first five minutes of the movie are pretty thrilling. So I could see why he would be anxious about that. Right. And there is also, you know, a quiet place part one ends sort of on a cliffhanger. It is Mm -hmm. like, it's a cliffhanger that's also like a perfect ending on its own. And there is an argument that a quiet place was just like a perfect standalone movie and the more you franchise it, you know, the the more you lose in terms of at least like, I don't want to say ideas, but a- elevation of the genre, if you will. And so, but, but on the flip side, it ends on a cliffhanger. And I am assuming that people are like, oh, what happens next? You know, so we're going to tell you what happens next. And if that's a spoiler for you, once again, please turn it off. Go to your local movie theater if you feel safe doing so, and then revisit us. You know, I, I like how you phrase that, though, about the cliffhanger ending and the kind of that sense of perfect anticipation that the movie mm-hmm. ended with, where on the one hand, I probably would have been, I guess, a little slightly happier with the standalone nature of the first film because it seemed like, you know, an original story that was extraordinarily contained. Most stories like that about an alien invasion in which there is like a high level, like a, a a sort of global genocide basically that is happening because of this invasion. The film focused on five characters. That, mm-hmm. that, that was really the whole movie was five people. And I thought very carefully and elegantly told their story. Was it a perfect movie? Of course not. But it would have been satisfying for it to be a standalone movie. The ju- The sort of story justification for the second film, I think, is a little bit different than the financial justification. Of course, given the success of the movie, there was going to be a second one. Whether we needed a second one is kind of always up for debate anytime we get this new conversation around IP. I thought in general, though, the movie mostly justified itself. Um, I didn't really feel like it was straining to be, straining to be, mm-hmm. even though I did feel like it frequently repeated the beats from the first film. Did you feel like it ultimately justified its own existence? Yes, because I could see where it's going. And I listen, there's A Quiet Place 3 coming for sure. And the ending of A Quiet Place 2, without spoiling, definitely sets up A Quiet Place 3. So if if the original was like, wow, what a like what a great high concept, you know, genre movie with some some ideas about these characters and like a neat ending. And I I, I do really like the ending of the original Quiet Place. It's like so hard to stick the landings on these things. And I like I really does. It honors like the John Krasinski character and everything that's going on with those kids. And it's exciting and it like leaves you wanting just enough more. So again, I prefer it as a standalone, but what they do in part two is like they 
they know where it's going from the beginning. And I feel like a lot of sequels, and especially sequels that are setting up a franchise, you really like no one figures out what the direction is and what we're doing until like possibly the very end of part two and like often in like movie four of a franchise, you know, or famously in uh, the Fast and Furious franchise, like movie number five. So in this case, like they know where they're going. They, they, they know what the, the purpose is. They know where the characters are going. And, and that makes a huge difference. A core concept of sequels and threequels is bigger is better. Most mm-hmm. of the time when you get a second or a third film, you get something that has significantly bigger scale. And this movie has slightly bigger scale. I would say that there is a little bit too much alien in this movie for my taste. I thought one of the key aspects of the first film's effectiveness was one, the aliens were very fast, so they were very difficult to see. Two, I thought the creature design was pretty good, but you didn't see them that much until that very exciting finale. Right. And aside from showing the aliens a lot more, and we can talk about whether that worked for you or not, the movie is not that much bigger in scope. And I feel like that was a, a, a smart choice on their part to not try to tell us everything that happened with the invasion to kind of give us only these fl- this flashing sensation of the scope of the story. Yeah, it very slowly widens the world. And I, I agree with you that it really works. And in fact, there's one example where it like suddenly and briefly really widens the world that I like I didn't like at all. Um, and then and I thought it was kind of like the one false note in the movie, but otherwise you're again, still following this family. It is like a a family movie in a lot of ways. And if the first one was about parenthood, this one is about how teenagers are just like incredibly annoying, just like so annoying. (laughs) And there's like nothing that you can do to stop teenagers from just like being teenagers and like not listening and not using good decision-making until like finally, you know, they find their purpose. But like, I, you know, so even there, there is some continuity, even if I just absolutely wanted to yell at both of these teenagers throughout a lot of the movie. Yeah, I wonder if you can feel Krasinski and Blunt channeling their own experience of parenthood throughout yeah. some of this film. Not that they hate their kids, more so that it's like it's challenging to raise kids no matter the environment. Also, totally. I think the idea of keeping your kids quiet is fascinating. That's obviously yeah. something that many parents experience. And right. that seems to be not just a subtext, but a text text of this movie. Sure. Um Let's let's talk about it in more de- detail. Okay. So the the the, the beginning of this movie, uh, I think, is enormously effective. Yeah. And we did see some of the kind of key beats from this opening in the trailer, but it starts out as a kind of prequel to the sequel, and it shows us Krasinski's character moving through the town. What state is the film A Quiet Place happening in? I have no idea. I get like I thought because of the the silo and the fields that it was sort of midwestern. I mean, it's a no, 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 no. It's not. Um, it's upstate New York. Upstate and, New York, okay. And I, and I think that's because there's a map that's going to come into play later, Sean. Um, and, you know, if you're thinking about it distance-wise. But also, they make some reference to a valley. And I know that it was filmed, I believe, in part in upstate New York. So, so upstate New York is what I'm going with. Though I don't know how explicit it is. I think it's been a, it was a little bit elusive, and if if they did clearly indicate it in either of the movies, I apologize. But I was trying to figure out: is this Pennsylvania? Is this rural New Jersey? It seemed to be a more bucolic part of the East Coast. Yes. Um, and so we see John Krasinski in this small town that he and his family live in. He's picking up some stuff from the store. He goes to a ball game where his son is playing, and there's a whole. You see a community 
mm-hmm. a community before the invasion. And then across the sky, over the ball field, we see an alien ship. Really mm-hmm. just a light in the sky crashing down. Confusion, I, a little I'm bit of panic. I'm going to be honest. It's a bit more than a light in the sky. It's <laughs> just like a, it's a very large, you would be very frightened if you saw it. It's um, noticeable. You can see it moving. It definitely has fire around it. It's it's large. You don't want to be near it. It's ominous. And I thought that that sequence, there was quite a bit of Spielbergian tension being created mm-hmm. throughout this whole sequence. Now, obviously, Spielberg is probably the single most influential person on this franchise. There's all kinds of Jaws and Jurassic Park happening throughout the first Quiet Place film and in this Quiet Place. But I think showing us Krasinski again, obviously, is very powerful. People are very connected to him from the first movie. And then we get this kind of rip-roaring 10-minute sequence in which we see what happens when the aliens first arrive, when the creatures first start wreaking havoc across the world, but specifically in this town. And we get introduced to uh, Killian Murphy, the Irish actor who is a big part of this film. And I got to say, Krasinski is really good at staging this stuff. I would have mm-hmm. never guessed based on, say, brief interviews with Hideous Men, <laughs> the film he directed in 2009, that this was the kind of movie he was capable of. But he he... He's good at it. Listen, we all like have to go through our undergraduate phase. Then we got to <laughs> just like graduate, you know, move past it. I'm willing to give him that space. Yeah, it, it's it's very exciting. It's um just like a lot more action sequency. There's a, there are a lot of cars involved, some stunt driving from Emily Blunt. Yes. Things are being smashed around. Then there is, you know, kind of. The inevitable, but still completely terrifying. Um, is the cell phone going to ring? Uh, scene, which is, is like a classic. I don't even watch horror movies, and I know that that's just like a, a new um, tradition. But I was still uh, deeply upset and stressed out the whole time. Let me ask you an important question about these mm-hmm. aliens. Mm-hmm. So it's so funny. So do you do you think of the original as an alien movie? Like, are you and me that like these are aliens, and I'm like it, and this is the alien genre? Well, I think that comes with some stigma or some some baggage because you think of like little green men when you think of aliens and these are these kind of insectoid creatures but i mean they are aliens i mean they're clearly from another planet come to destroy ours i think there's just like a lack of space culture in these movies Mm -hmm. you know do you like that yeah but i but so i don't really sort it as alien movie it's like more creature movie to me and i think this movie leans into like just like the creature monster here's some gross stuff aspect of it there's like you know we don't know a lot about the spaceship not a lot of people pontificating about you know the world outside and what like what are they are they speaking to us and what they want so i i mean they are aliens but i don't really think of them as aliens, I just think of them as creatures. So I think one thing that gives it some distinction and that probably confuses it, the, the, the question there, is unlike most alien invasion movies, there is this sort of um, this pas de deux between humans and the alien species. It's sort, sort, sort of this curiosity of like, why are they here? What do they want? Mm-hmm. In this movie, they just cut to the quick. They're like, we are here to destroy you. Like, I, I yeah. seriously don't even know what it is. They, do they want to eat human flesh? They I never even really explain that. One of my enduring questions, like, what are their goals? What are their motivations? What are they doing now that they've won? Because that's the other thing. Like, the, the aliens have just mostly won. There are little pockets here and there and people doing their best. But 
what are the creatures doing with their time? So there's a very funny, <laughs> there's a very funny image from the first film in which there's a whiteboard and Krasinski's character has written right. some very key facts on the whiteboard. And they're the most obvious facts of all time. They're like, can't hear, you know, like they're just some very simple rules about how to live in this world that is obviously meant to make the audience feel more safe. That has been kind of memed recently and has sure. been poked fun at. On the other hand, imagine something like this happening to you in the world and having no sense of any motivation for these these creatures trying to figure out how the hell your normal life in small town upstate New York turned into this horror show. It kind of right. it's kind of reasonable. I, I do want to say like and not to just go like full rewatchable it's nitpicking, but another device that they use in the original is all like the New York Post headlines. And there is yes. just a collection of newspapers and it's like it's sound, you know, which like listen, as far as narrative devices go, great. I I love a fake New York Post headline, but the existence of several newspaper headlines um suggests that it's a several day affair that the, it's a it's a week-long campaign for the aliens or in order to defeat everyone but what we see in part two it's very clearly day one and they show up and it's just like game over immediately so i would like to know who's printing the newspapers and it's how a, the newspapers are being distributed it's a very good point i have thought of this many times through many alien invasion movies i'm like so people are just going to work like they're just copy editors making sure that all the sentences make sense in these pieces despite the fact that there are aliens in the streets and that's, i think like even some consider. of the newspapers in part one are just like newspaper signing off like godspeed <laughs> and good luck so they're acknowledging it but there are just some timeline inconsistencies and and just about like newspaper distribution especially to like upstate new york or rural new jersey or whatever what kind of early stage alien invasion podcast would you and i make what do you think the big <laughs> picture would be like would we would it would we, just would, be like top five alien survival <laughs> whatever and we'd like put together a plan based what do on the aliens mean for movie theaters right? god will all the theaters close because of these ravenous aliens um <laughs> so here's what it says on that whiteboard by the way yeah there are two columns one yeah. says creature in all caps up top right. with so a that's square around it, a creature. it yes it's a creature and it says blind mm-hmm. attack sound armor with underlines under it and then a question, how many in area? And then in red, it says confirmed three. Mm-hmm. And then in the right column, it says survive with a square around it. And it says dash medical supplies, dash soundproofing. And then in green, what is the weakness? Now, well, that's the whole movie. But like, that's like, that's great. That's actually, this is a great lesson for everyone who wants to write something. If you want to tell a story, you want to make an argument. You got a little paper you need to write. This is how you outline it. You've got motivation. You've got the boundaries. You've got the context. You've got um, the the story arc. You have like it's. You've got details. It's really good and concise. Uh, people can be rude, but John Krasinski storyboarded the whole movie. Okay, and and maybe people on the internet should learn something. There is, of course, a return to that image when we go back into the house. So after we have this really traumatic opening sequence, we go back to almost immediately after the end of the first movie. Mm -hmm. And so we're cut to Evelyn has just essentially blown the head off of an alien in their basement and they're preparing to to bail to get out of their house. Okay, but can we open the complaint department now? Of course. All right. So ending of A Quiet Place Part One. 
they, you'll recall, they kill one alien because they figure out the technology with the little ear thing, which I have to be honest, don't totally understand. But I know that that piece of, of equipment is from her dad and is also the key to defeating the aliens. So they kill the one and then they hear the other two coming. And then Emily Blunt as Evelyn kind of gets the shotgun ready, cut to black, right? So the two guys are on the way. Where are the two guys in a part two, Sean? Where are they? What happened to them? I think the presumption is, is that they have a, they arrive mm-hmm. and they are also, um, you know, essentially disabled by that high frequency pitch of feedback that they get when they get into the basement. That's so my it just, guess. It happens. It's like, it's a Greek tragedy. It happens off stage. I believe so. Okay. I want to, I want to say just very quickly. I, that's also when you and I are particularly yelling at each other on this pod, <laughs> what happens to the aliens heads when you get the high frequency pitch is how I imagine Bobby Wagner when he's editing the show, you know, where he's just like, I have to make it through this. I'm going to keep fighting. These two morons are yelling at each other. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's never blown our head off, which I appreciate. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that those other two aliens have been killed by them. I could be wrong. Okay. That was my presumption. Sure. But I just, what did we, what did we pay money for? Show me some alien, you know. Okay, but that's, see, that to no, me is I know. part it's of actually, the issue. It's, There's it's too actually, much alien. It's tr- That's true. And I think it's actually like a good story making decision. I think the, the choice to do the prequel is like, and, and not pick up right where it ends is incredibly smart. And that series is really effective and it reminds you of the stakes and like the bigger ideas and also is well done. And so I guess you don't really need to jump right back to just like, let's kill some aliens. That's that's smart. But I wanted some resolution. Or so, I just noticed. I was like, oh, hold on, what happened to the other two? So my big confusion actually about that sequence when we get back into the quote unquote present day is why do they leave? Because if they've discovered this methodology for mowing down these aliens that are coming to them and they've only identified three in the area. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. their barn is on fire. So that's an issue. The, the barn that they have created where they, where they can live. But I believe there's another living space in the house that they could occupy. And it seems like they figured out how to go forward. And so they basically pick up and leave. The family goes out and sets off into the world, which we know is very dangerous from the first film because that, that's how the little boy is killed in the first film from being out in the world. And I don't know where they're headed. I guess they're looking for civilization. They're looking for some place, some sort of salvation. But that seems pretty risky with two teenagers and a baby. Uh, well, I think that Emily Blunt's character is like, I don't know if, if I can handle these two idiot kids <laughs> and a brand new baby by myself. And also they need supplies, specifically the oxygen for the baby, which like, we can talk about it now. We can talk about it later. Let's talk about it now. That's I, that's a key I, issue in this, this film. Is, it's my number one thing. I just, this baby is a day old and has already gone through one canister of oxygen. They only have two more oxygen canisters at the weirdly stocked store, a hundred, you know, a, a year and a half after the invasion because no one else needed oxygen apparently. But that's still one canister a day to keep this baby from crying. Like, this baby's not going to make it, Sean. Well, the baby does make it. Mostly I know, but films. it's like, like what, what are we going to do? It's one day. Like, this baby is in adorable. I'm very pro-baby and just very concerned about what's going on with this. Like, it's tough. A baby cries. That's what they do. 
I think baby terror is also one of the most powerful terrors that you can sure. find at the movies. I think there's nothing that makes people freak out quite like a baby, which is why I think Krasinski is deploying it. You know, that is the that's the ultimate vulnerability is an infant child. But you have to suspend some disbelief, not just because there's an alien invasion, but because you're right. This baby would be crying a lot with these aliens roaming around. This is yeah. babies cry a lot when they you know don't like the taste of, you know, whatever Gerber baby food they've just been fed. So. <laughs> I, yes, that would be that's an not, issue. That's not why they're crying, but okay. Keep okay, going. why are they crying? Because because teeth they're are crying growing. They need something because they need food because it's the only way they can express themselves. I can only relate because the only time I cry is when I eat, eat something I don't like. You yeah, know, put some cilantro true. in my mouth okay. and I'm like, get out of here, and I start crying <laughs> like a baby. Um, I guess from there, obviously, we we are reintroduced to the Killian Murphy character who has effectively created this safe harbor in what seems like it used to be a, a factory, a mill of some kind mm-hmm. that has a boiler room. And in the boiler room, there is, um, I guess, a safe. I don't totally know what that contraption is where they're able to enter and exist uh, quietly, but without a lot of oxygen. Is it a furnace? A furnace. That sounds right. Why is it not hot? Because it's turned off? Because it's no longer an operational boiler room? Because there was an apocalypse? But they're still printing newspapers. What happened to the furnace? They were printing newspapers for like a week. It's been like 440 whatever days since they printed a newspaper. Where <laughs> yeah. they boiled things in the boiler room. What still works and what doesn't work is a fascinating part of a post-apocalyptic setting. Sure. 100%. Also like something that I don't think is totally consistent. But you know, I, I'm more open to that. I'm just primarily concerned with the baby crying. Killian Murphy, of course, has lost his family uh, in the face of the apocalypse and is at first very reluctant to bring in these four human beings who will make a lot of noise and potentially jeopardize his future. Although I don't really know what he's hoping to accomplish at this stage. He's clearly been living there for hundreds of days and has taken up charcoal drawing, but also um, doesn't <laughs> seem to have any answers. For no, how, I don't where know if the next. charcoal drawing is all him because they say that he has only lost his wife six weeks ago. Six weeks. So prior. was it her who was she doing the charcoal been drawing? drawing? Yeah, she got sick and they didn't have enough medicine, and so I think he's grieving. Like that's kind of why he's you know all prickly because he's trying to survive and is also just like a, a loss and and has lost a lot. So unlike Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt's characters who have really been beaten down by mm-hmm. the apocalypse, the two kids played by Noah Jupe and Millicent Simmons, they want to. They want to go forward. They want to solve some stuff. Unfortunately, Noah Jupe steps in a bear trap, which then makes it very difficult for him to go anywhere. Millicent Simmons, on the other hand, after Noah Jupe hears a transmission of the Bobby Darren song, Beyond the Sea, mm-hmm. interprets that that is a message. And Millicent Simmons then sets out to go find the people who are broadcasting that song somewhere beyond the sea. Mm-hmm. Specifically a barrier island off of Connecticut. Yes. Millicent Simmons' character and the actress in real life, of course, is deaf. And that was a clever storytelling twist in the first film and also creates a shitload of anxiety for anybody watching these movies because we can hear the film from her perspective and thus not be able to hear, say, an alien around the corner. And there's an amazing moment in the movie, amazing sequence. Oh, my God. That is the scariest shot in the whole movie when she's on a train. Yes. So she goes, she sets out into the world to go find where the signal is coming from. And she finds herself on a, a train that has been destroyed by aliens, what seems like many, many days ago. And again, an incredibly effective piece of Spielbergian staging here. Very sim- lot of 
T-Rex and Jurassic Park energy in yeah. this sequence. And, you know, it's incredibly well done. Like, I, I, I just think I'm, I'm surprised by how good Krasinski is at pulling off some of this stuff. But that also ultimately leads to Killian Murphy saving Milton Simmons's character. And then they set off on a quest together to kind of figure out how to find other humans. So, you know, the movie essentially proceeds from there. I don't think we mm-hmm. necessarily need to talk about every single beat of the film. Needless to say, they do find more humans, some good, some not mm-hmm. so good. Oh, right. The not so so the not so good humans is was my complaint. I didn't so, need it. So let's let's talk about that scene. So like what happens in that scene? Can you kind of recount what goes down there? Sure. So it, as previously mentioned, Millicent Simmons and Killian Murphy are trying to get to an island that is off. I, I think it's Connecticut. Listen, the map's pretty close, but I don't think it was the vineyard. I don't think it was Nantucket. I think it was a closer island. And they obviously that means they have to, you know, find a vessel. So they make it to a dock and there are some boats. And as they're trying to figure out which boat to take, like basically half zombie people show up and they're not full zombies, but they have very red eyes and they don't speak, obviously, but it's but they're not trying to communicate either. There's no kind of like silent acknowledgement or certainly no camaraderie. They are threatening. Um, And also one of them is Scoot McNary. So that's, and it just like takes you a while to be like, yeah, no, wait, that actually is that's Scoot McNary, just like as a as a zombie. And then does someone get shot? Like, do they attack? What what happens to draw the creatures to the dock? I don't remember, but the so creatures es- are drawn drawn to the dock. So essentially, they're attempting to um, find a boat that they can use to t- to take right. off, and they identify a young girl racing through the dock. And the young girl then parks herself at the end of the dock and crouches down. And it seems as if she has been hurt. And so Killian Murphy's character goes to help her. Right. And then it's revealed when she puts a noose around his neck that can, will make a lot of noise if he moves that he has been trapped. And he's been trapped by these, you know, they're, I, they're not zombies. They're not, they're just, they're humans who have been forced to not speak for hundreds of days and are living in this kind of, um, I don't know, like aquatic harbor area and doing whatever they can to survive, which includes capturing humans. Um, And that leads to like a slightly confusing action sequence in which um, Killian Murphy turns the tables on the Scoot McNary character who has no lines of dialogue in this entire film. And it's like a fun cameo and a slightly confusing cameo because you're maybe spending two of the five minutes of that sequence wondering, was that actually Scoot McNary? Nevertheless, the creatures arrive when when we hear some noise and then they get out on a boat and then we try to figure out, can the creatures swim? Can they drive a boat? What is actually happening here? Can Millicent Simmons and Killian Murphy escape? And in fact, they do escape and they find themselves on the path to human civilization, mm-hmm. get to this island. And then there are people living comfortably, happily. It seems like they're camping and uh, hanging out around a bonfire every night, which is kind of beautiful until it's not so beautiful. Right. I. I- I didn't care for like the zombie or the fake zombies, but the the can they swim moment was like very exciting, uh, you know, like very classic, but like communicated well to me. And I just found myself immediately just being like, oh, my God, can they swim? Can they swim? He needs to get under. Can they swim? I mean, and that's fun. That's like when a movie is working um, and they, they can't swim, um, but they can figure out how to use a boat. Which, uh, you know, again, like, how have they not figured out how to use boats before now is another question. But they 
they definitely know how to use a boat. And that was also like, you knew it was coming, but once they reveal it, it's um, very distressing. I was like, oh no, they can use a boat. Eventually an alien does arrive on a boat and that alien lands in this, you know, this Valhalla and is quickly just, just wreaks havoc on everyone. Um, Can I ask you quickly about one of the characters on the island who's played by Jaiman Hansu? Yeah. What's going on with that? What's going on with that character? Great fisherman sweater. Great, great sweater. I agree. Uh, But his, his performance in that character is really weird. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't understand this community really because I, like I am happy for them that they made it like basically to, to Martha's Vineyard. If not Martha's Vineyard, like a, it looks lovely. They're all camping. I don't understand why their distress message or their come find us message had to be in code. Like I, you know, why it needs to be beyond the sea beyond that like being like a cute movie thing but I don't think they're doing a great job of communicating with the outside world I don't really think they're taking responsibility as like some of the only survivors that we know seriously it's like maybe what I would do but also if you were Killian Murphy and you showed up and you were like you guys have just been here this whole time just like having a normal life and you weren't going to help us wouldn't you like be a little angry I would. So, but let's see it from the other perspective. If you were sure. Jaiman Hansu or some of the other people living on that island, would you broadcast a signal to let people know that there is safe harbor there? Because I don't, I feel like it's pretty, that's a pretty dangerous decision and it didn't pay off. Yeah. Though they made it a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I guess at some point you want to know if anything else is going on, right? Like curiosity, being stuck on an island with people showing up. That's the other thing. It does seem like people keep showing up from time to time. It like started small and more people are coming. So I guess. Let me ask you this. Where are yeah. they getting their rations? I did wonder about this. I mean, you know, maybe they're gardening. Maybe there's like a farming system. I don't know about long-term supplies um, that aren't available to grow on the farm. But, you know, where where John Krasinski and Emily Blunt getting like all of the oxygen can canisters we know where but like really that shop is still totally stocked it's a little far-fetched yeah let me ask you this any prescription that you need just sitting there so what they replicate is commune living on this island Mm -hmm. have you ever wanted to be a part of a commune no of course not why not i just talked about how i didn't want to speak to other people at the (laughs) movie screening right like no i don't want a commune life I, i nice ideals Mm-hmm. I would feel stressed out about it. I would do terribly in an apocalypse. We know this. I'm dying on day one. As soon as I don't have access to my contacts or vision support, like the aliens or whatever are coming to get me. I think in this particular apocalypse, I would do pretty well. Because what I love to do is just sit quietly and not speak. That's true. I feel very comfortable sitting quietly and not talking for hours at a time. Right. Which is weird that I've now chosen podcasting as part of my profession. You seem to, you mocked the plan, you know, you mocked the whiteboard. So would you be ready to do the survival planning necessary? Yes, but it would be in spreadsheets. Okay, great. (laughs) Good. Um, You know, the movie obviously ends in a somewhat similar fashion to the first film, which is to say a very dramatic showdown with the alien that has come to the island and using the sort of like feedback technology to disable that alien and then blow its head off. It's pretty exciting. I thought it was a pretty dramatic conclusion, if very similar to the first film. 
And I do think that that's potentially a challenge for making future films like this is how do you not just keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again? I do wonder if there is a third film. And as you said, there probably will be. Will it be a lot bigger? Will they do something that is like on a massive scale about how to actually defeat this invasion with the remaining survivors on Earth? What do you think? Yeah, it's certainly opening it up much wider, though. She's doing it on the broadcast system. So how many people have their radios on? Probably very few because most people are dead. And also you don't really use the radio in this world. But yes, the idea is that to the as far as this radio signal can reach, they're now trying to take on these aliens. So maybe like Quiet Place 3 is North America and Quiet Place 4 is international because they've figured out how to use boats. Um, also, you know, were there people, were there ships landing different places? Probably. It seems like a pretty complete international takeover. The, the other thing that was interesting, especially of the last half of this movie, is that it's really about the kids. It's really about Millicent Simmons and like Noah Jupe is put in charge of the baby because Emily Blunt has to go get oxygen. And she gets like one really good scene staring down a creature as she's coming back. And she sacrifices one of the oxygen canisters, which again was my primary source of stress throughout this movie. But for the most part, it, she's like really a supporting character, even more so than the, the first movie. And it's about the kids learning what their dad taught them and trying to take responsibility and like fighting the monsters themselves, which is essentially at this point, just stranger things, but that's fine. A lot of people like stranger things. So I think the other thing about quiet place three is that it seems like it will be a lot more about the kids. I think that's reasonable to assume. Um, Emily Blunt does survive this movie though, just barely that sequence that you're talking about where she has this showdown with an alien in this and you know, where the furnace is set is intercut is cross cut with the sequence on the harbor and it's oh, right. pr- it's a pretty uh, similarly a very a pretty thrilling i think it's it's uh, i've got that right right the, it's that it's that sequence or it's not the train sequence right it's the sequence in the in the harbor where they're cross cut i think yeah i think that's correct um and again very spielbergian move that is very effective um so that's a quiet place part 2 we both really liked it i think a lot of yeah. people are really going to like it i think they're going to feel happy that this was the movie that they returned to movie theaters for. Do you think it's the ideal movie? Do you think it's the the best possible movie you could have? I, I mean, I don't know about best possible, but it is, I, I think it is best case. Um, it moves really fast. Uh, it just in terms of like, and here's another monster and here's another thing that's going wrong, which, you know, as you pointed out, it's maybe not as like nuanced as the first movie. There are a lot of creatures, but also if you're in a really, in a movie theater, you just want, lots of stuff happening all at once. That's certainly what I've wanted after the the last year and a half watching like, you know, quiet films of people talking and listen, quiet films of people talking are my favorite type of movie, but I was like, Oh, okay. You have my attention. And in terms of the, the setting and like the bigness of the very gross creatures, they're really gross. I like, I don't really need that much of it, but whatever, but also the sound and how they use the sound. This is a bit louder than a quiet place one. Um, but just just like the difference my home system is not really set up to to communicate all of it so it's like pretty immersive and and also quick 90 minutes and you're out yeah relative to the first film it is missing a couple of those indelible signature moments thinking specifically of obviously that introduction where we see the sun get taken away by the alien which is 
pretty upsetting and a very yeah. effective way to open the movie. Then, of course, Krasinski's character sacrificing himself for his kids where he screams and then you see the alien attack. And then, of course, that finale that you talked about at the end with Emily Blunt cocking the shotgun. But it's pretty effective. It's mm-hmm. pretty fun. And I'm happy that we have it. I'm looking forward to more movies this summer because stuff's happening. Stuff's being released. You know, Cruella. We can start thinking about Cruella 2. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> What else? What else are you anticipating this summer? Anything? Uh, Fast 9 is arriving. Absolutely. I, listen, they go to space. There's not a lot of space in the Quiet Place movies, but apparently there is in a franchise about car racing. And we'll go from there. This has been The Big Picture. Thanks to Bobby Wagner, our producer, for his work on this show. Amanda and I will be back later this week to talk about another new summer movie along with Chris Ryan. I'm talking about The Conjuring colon The Devil Made Me Do It. We'll see you then.